This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Go ahead. We planned this carefully. Hide <laughs> <laughs> my main person. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, can you hear me? Fantastic. Um, welcome to this uh, Edinburgh International Book Festival event, a special skinny event this evening. Um, my name is Terry Jameson. I'm a writer for the Herald and the Sunday Herald. And um, now and again, I get to write about graphic novels. So it's a very great privilege and slightly daunting pleasure to be here tonight to introduce um, this special session, a kind of extra bonus session we've got tonight um, with our two guests. Joe Sacco and, and Chris Ware have already done events. I don't know, as a matter of interest, did any of you get along to any of those? Yeah, okay, so I'll need to think of some new questions. Um, who's your favourite pop star? We'll get to that. Um, <laughs> what we're going to do tonight is do, just pull back a little bit and just talk actually about graphic novels, the form. What, what you, what, what's special about them? What can you do? Uh, what challenges are there? What rewards are there? Why these two guys do them? And um, I, I think they're probably the two best people to ask that question because they're in very different ways. They do some amazing things with the form. Um, I'm not going to really bore you with the introduction. You know who they are. Um, just put your hands together for Joe and Chris, please. Thank you. Okay. I just want to start, actually, just a very stupid question. What do cartoonists talk about when they get together? Money. Money. Is it? <laughs> it's always money, is it? Well, it's like the only person you can talk to about that sort of stuff, agents, how publishers are treating you, who ripped you off. It's uh, with another cartoonist, really. <laughs> we talk about our friends, we talk about each other. Um, I don't know, what were we talking about? Oh, we were kind of discussing that a little bit. Yeah, know? we actually wanted to talk about each other's work, I think, and then we said, let's just save it, let's just yeah. save it for, the, for this event. So, yeah, it was kind of weird to do that at a restaurant, actually. So, but, yeah, we'll talk about publishers who are mean, you know. Okay. Don't, you know, so it's a happy conversation then, really. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I wanted to start by just pulling back a bit and asking about, I guess, biographical questions. And, and just ask, what, what was the visual context you grew up in? What were the things you were kind of looking at, reading, watching as kids? Just that, not, not in any way particularly comic books, although we'll bring that in as well. But just what was the visual world that you um, grew up with as a kid and as a teenager? <laughs> <laughs> Is that better? It will be. Can everybody hear me? Now that we're done, you can't hear me either. Should I yell? I have two of these. No, two. They're not working. Clip it to my nostril here. Oh, that's kind of working. That's nice. I can just hold it like that, but that's weird. Okay. What did you ask again? What was the visual context of childhood and teenage years? What was the kind of things you were looking at? I have to hold this thing here. Well, am I supposed to go first? I'll go first. Yeah, you go first. Uh, in my case, I was just addicted to television. I spent my entire childhood just glued to a television set, um, watching cartoons, um, watching you know the anything basically. It was on all all day and all all night, um, and uh, it I, I I decided when I went to college that I would just cut that completely out of my life. Um, uh, and I really haven't watched it since, with the exception of some you know movies and stuff, but. Mm. Beyond that, I grew up in the Midwest, in, in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. 
I did play outside quite a bit, but I was I was definitely mired in a kind of a the general uh, pop culture that they were you know trying to sell to children at that time. I did read comics, but I spent more time actually copying comics, like I said the other night, tracing them and, and drawing superheroes and stuff like that. So I did read Peanuts, yeah. read newspapers, uh, newspaper comics, but I spent most of my time. Watching. I like television so much. I've told this story many times that when the the Christmas specials would come on, and I knew I would not see them again for an entire year, I would actually kiss the television, <laughs> you know, like so sad that I wouldn't see you know Charlie Brown again yeah. for another year. So Joe, it'd be different for you because you were in Malta, I guess, or Australia. No, I lived in Australia. Australia. And uh, we had a television, but we didn't. Um, I was allowed to watch it, I think, at 4 o'clock, and I'd watch it for half an hour. Then my, it was my sister's program, and she watched it, and we would fight about who was going to watch it. But I didn't watch as much television, perhaps. It wasn't on all the time. That didn't stop my mother from calling me a TV addict. Wow. But, um, and what part did comic strips play as a kid? Uh, as a kid, I read... Um, there was this comics character from an English magazine called Moonbeam. I, I, some children's magazine or something, and both my sister and I ripped ripped it off and started drawing our own Moonbeam stories. Wow. And then we'd argue about who who stole it first, basically. <laughs> so you come from the tradition of the sibling rivalry yes. cartoonist rather than yes. a well, um, yes. there's, yeah. there's only two kinds of cartoonists. One, you, if you have a brother or a sister who like uh, beats you into drawing comics that you compete with, like Robert Crumb, or the lonely kid cartoonist like Art Spiegelman or myself, I guess. So that's, I didn't realize you were the sibling one. That's interesting. Yeah, and my sister actually was better than me huh. until she was about 12 and then she sort of discovered boys and she stopped, she literally stopped drawing. But, um... You didn't discover boys, obviously. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, so I was drawing some comics. I was reading comics as I got a bit older. I was reading, like, Picos Bill. It was, I think it was a British comic. We were, in, Amer in Australia, we had British and American mm. comics. So then I was reading British war comics and American war comics and Mad Magazine. Yeah. And uh, I think at around 13 or so, when I moved to America, the Ma there were these Mad Magazine specials where they started reprinting old 50s comics, mm -hmm. old, the old 50s Mad. And that blew my mind. It was so different from the pedestrian Mad Magazine that I knew. These older comics were just insanely hilarious. And it was one of those moments when something, some switch goes on and it just tells you, Oh, you can you can do this sort of thing. Well, that was the next question I was going to ask: is, is what was your discovery of, of someone or a cartoonist or whoever who actually did flip, flip that switch and, and you realised actually, do you know what? There's something more I can do with this. You're asking me, I, yeah, well, yeah. I would definitely say I would add Mad Magazine to that experience mm. as well. I remember those those '50s comics being reprinted. That was the very first comic I tried to draw myself. Actually, was an imitation of those those Mad comics, which were essentially parodies of comics themselves. Uh, the very first issues, and Art Spiegelman has very astutely pointed out that those were the those were the first things that he saw as a kid that said to him, hey kid, something's wrong here. There's, you know, they're trying to pull something off on you and here's what's really going on. And it was, it kind of planted the seed of suspicion within him that, that, that all was not right with this thing called America. So, mm -hmm. and I think I sort of felt the, the same thing maybe. But the, at that, by the time I came along, Mad Magazine had almost become like a corporate shill for copying, you know, eight by ten photographs of famous movie stars and their movie parodies. It was almost like a way of getting to see the movie again yourself in the satirical yeah. way. So, um, but in my own case, it was definitely Charles Schultz's Peanuts. I think Charles Schultz was the cartoonist who was 
the first to introduce the idea and the potential for and the mechanism of empathy into comics. Charlie Brown is the first cartoon character that you feel for and feel through, I believe, in comics. So this first cartoon character I ever really cared for. I really deeply loved Charlie Brown, so it made me really sad when awful things happened to him. So. Huh. It's an interesting question, Joe, perhaps for you, because it's okay, you can see an example, maybe like Crumb or, or as you say, Peanuts, whatever, that you say, I could, I could do that. But you're actually taking it a further step with journalism and saying, actually I'm taking this graphic form and saying, yeah, we can do journalism with this. So, I mean, what was the kind of, the key to actually taking that step? Oh, that came a lot later. Mm, of course. Um, and it, I mean, it came because I, I never thought I would make a living at cartoons. I mean, I didn't think in those terms at all. It was just something I'd done since I was a kid. Um, when I was in high school, I was on the student newspaper, and I liked, I liked uh, writing stories. I liked journalism. I liked hard, writing hard news. So um, um, I didn't, it, in no way did it occur to me that one could make a living at that sort of thing. So I wanted to be a writer. And when, when I got out of school with a degree in journalism and I couldn't find a job, eventually I sort of fell back on cartooning as a means of self-expression. I would go to this awful job in LA and come home and, you know, do stories about office life, do comics about office life, not knowing what I was going to do with this stuff. I didn't really understand how publishing worked or who was publishing anything anymore. It seemed, I, I, didn't, I didn't get it at all, yeah. how, how it would all work. And eventually, you know, after I started doing comics, uh, journalism came to me um, very organically. It was, I'd, I'd already started doing comics called Yahoo, these, this comic series, and I was interested in politics. And I went to the Middle East, and I thought, well, I might as well do a comic series about my experiences. That's how I, that's how I saw it. Mm. I didn't see it as strictly journalistic. I saw it as a travelogue, maybe, and just my experiences. But when I was there, something just kicked in. Um, I guess my way of thinking was a journalistic way, because I was interviewing people. I wasn't yeah. just talking to them. I was trying to get quotes right. And then I was thinking, well, I need to see this aspect of people's lives, and this, and that. And I started thinking like a journalist, and so very organically it, it grew up. It wasn't, I did not say, I did not wake up one morning and say, hmm, journalism and comics can, <laughs> can fit together. It was very organic. Mm. Let's get this out of the way. What are the frustrations of the forum? What is it that you, you can't stand about what you do? It's how long it takes. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's embarrassing, really. I mean, you know, it's, it's, if, you, if somebody, I don't know, how long did it take you to do this book? And, well, 11 years. No, <laughs> just a half an hour ago, somebody said, Jesus Christ. And it's like, it's, I mean, it's, and, and it's driven home every day when I think of, of uh, how little I accomplish on the page. I'll, I'll feel good if I get three panels done, you know, and then an entire day of my life has passed. And a lot can happen in a day, as, as many great writers have shown us, and James Joyce among them. So it's... Uh, um, I wish it was speedier, but it's not. At the same time, the time that that takes, I think, allows for a certain density of thought to accrue on the page, almost like a condensation in a way. And it allows you to think through things in a three-dimensional way that possibly writing only with words might maybe rush you past a little bit. Not to say that it's better, but it's different, that's mm. all. And as well, keeping your eyes open when you're writing through images where you're looking at something and feeling through something on the page is quite different than dealing only with the words as, as concepts. You said in the past that drawing is writing. Yeah, I 
think so. Yeah, or writing is drawing if you want to be really confusing about it. But um, <laughs> certainly writing is thinking, drawing is thinking. Drawing is not just a technical still. Drawing is a way of, of also looking at the world and understanding the world. I, I don't understand why drawing is so underplayed in, in the arts, really. It's seen as sort of a starting point, but to mm. me it's always felt like the ending point. Like the, I admire drawings much more than I admire painting, so. But, uh, it's, uh, and it's not easy, it's, but anybody can do it. Everybody's always doing it. When you actually look out into the world and you look at somebody and you try to see them, you're drawing whether you realize it or not. You're not holding a pen in your hand. That's just the recording of the act of seeing. But if you're looking at the world, you're actually, in a way, you're, you're, you're drawing it. So mm. That sounds pretentious, but no, I don't mean it too. So. <laughs> Jill, for you, what's the frustration? I, I think it's exactly the same thing. It takes an incredible amount of time and sometimes I feel like I have a lot of ideas I would like to get to in the course of my life. I mean, you get to a certain age and begin to think, how much can I now, how much can I end up doing? You know, barring something cutting me off before a healthy old age like 85 or something, you know? So uh, it, the time is a frustration. Um, but it's true. It, it does allow you to sort of, I, I think it allows you to feel in a way. Um, What's, what's interesting about uh, what I've realized about my work is um, when I go and I'm, I'm interviewing people and I'm, I'm overseas doing the stories, I've got a very cold way of looking at things in, in a way. I, um, I'm getting someone's story. I understand it's a very tragic story, but I'm very professional about how I'm handling that person and how I'm trying to keep that person on track. And I'm, I'm sort of... Um, making sure they don't, you know, they're, they're not twisting, they're, they try to twist out of it by talking about something else and yeah. you sort of bring them. It's what any journalist does, they try to keep the person on track. When I get, and I do that over and over again every day when I'm in the field, um, when I get back and I'm drawing, then it's a very different thing. You actually have to inhabit what that person was telling you. It's, it is, it's exactly, it's like what Chris is saying, that really resonates with me because um, you, you're thinking about their gesture, and you're thinking, oh, they were in the school, and they had their hands over their head, so what, how do I draw that? And sometimes you have to draw yourself in the mirror to get it right. It, it may be like an actor. An actor inhabits mm. their, a character, and I think an artist sort of has to inhabit everything they draw. So it's actually much more difficult to actually draw something than to hear a story uh, from the person face to face. Yeah. Well, the simple act that you draw those things too is a constant reminder that you're putting yourself through that and that the reader then reading those things. I feel the same way when I go through, even in, like when you say you're uh, trying to steer somebody towards a particular story, that's actually a part of Footnotes in Gaza where you're constantly saying this guy didn't want to talk about this so I kept trying to get him back and he would only want to talk about that and it becomes actually a part of his personality then, which I don't think any other reporter would include necessarily, but it really points to his personality and, and, the, and the, not only your experience there, but also his experience then later in life in recounting these things. Also the fact that you sign every single page with the year that you do it is really, it's like, it's like you're almost authorizing it in a way. It's like <laughs> Joe Sacco, this I know, it always feels good like, to put my little signature on there. It feels a little anal retentive now, and, and now I'm purposefully like leaving off my signature really? in the day. Yeah, because I keep thinking, now who cares about me like when I when I finish this page, you know. I actually think it's really important because when I read your, every one of your Change pages, <laughs> what? what? 
Do you want me to, oh. No, 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 I was just saying you, you, you've got to go back to it, obviously. Oh, so, yeah, every time I read one of your pages, and I even, even because you do it so small, it's mm. almost, sometimes you almost can't read it. But the fact that you do it, it reminds me that this is a drawing. In comics, especially, sometimes you forget that you're actually looking at drawings because they're a reproduced art form. They're frequently reduced on the page, so they become almost kind of a mechanical typography, which I myself aim for. But in your case, when you see that, that signature, you're reminded that this is the product of your hand and of your mind, and it lends it this sort of kind of, I don't know, like a tone of, of, of well, for lack of a better word, like an authority or something mm. like that. I don't All know. right, I'll I, keep doing it. No, no, no. <laughs> All right. No, thanks for saying that. In, in a sense, you're kind of trying to do two very different things, I think. Um, I guess, Joe, because you're a journalist and you're writing about Palestine, Bosnia, wherever it might be in, in journalism, you're in India and Iraq. Um, it's, it's kind of about trying to get clarity of the story. It's trying to kind of find a way through to what may have happened or may not have happened. Whereas, Chris, you're kind of talking about small town lives, but, or small, small lives, but the complexity of that. The kind still, of yeah. I'm still kissing the television. Yes. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering, do you, do you think there are overlaps between what you do? I, when I think of, I mean, when I knew we were going to be here, but any time I've thought of Chris's work, I think of him trying to get to some human essential elements or truths. And I think on some level, I'm trying to do the same thing. I mean, it is fiction and it's nonfiction, but ultimately I think, I think we both care about the way the world actually is mm -hmm. and want to show that. If you'd have to sum it up, that's how I see it. Yeah, I would agree. I, I feel though that what I do is so, indefensible you know it's just it's <laughs> truly like you know i just hoping for the best you i know? can like, i'll oh, defend but... it i mean um we're not... well no no i don't no, no, i mean seriously <laughs> it's nice um, of you. i don't know I, I don't know like where else would you go if you want to get a picture of how middle class people lived in america at a certain point in time i can't think of a better place to go than building stories frankly you know how people nice. lived you know what they did you you get a whole impression of how they interacted with uh, technology at their fingertips. I mean, you get, you get it all. Well, that's nice to be. At the same time, I think, like sometimes, my my wife, who's continued to watch television and keep up with the world, she'll say, "You have no idea what's going on in popular culture." Yeah, right now, you know, and I'll, I'll say, "Really? What? What's happening?" <laughs> you know, like, and, and so I'll, I'll think I'll be doing something that maybe hasn't been done. She'll like, "Oh, that was done on this show like five years ago or something." It's like, "Oh no!" Of course, it doesn't matter because it won't be published then for you know two more years by the time I finish the book. So, um, but you must be an observer of life. I mean, I know a lot of your places, a lot of your. Um, situations take place in the actual neighborhood you live in in Chicago yeah, right but that those don't seem like your lives I forge far out of field to <laughs> investigate no, human but they don't seem conflict. like your lives do you know it, they, yeah. they seem like you're obser you've observed what's around you I suppose that's true yeah I mean I, I cannot defend what I do at all when I'm here with you. I mean I see I see Joe as, as really the moral center of my <laughs> humble profession, really. There's nobody else doing what he is doing. There's nobody else that's tried to do what he does. Uh, for you to start out from interviewing people, then to going into telling their stories, then to going into telling their stories that happened years before, you're exploring something that nobody else has ever tried before with drawing, I think, of a storytelling. You're a unique person in that way, and you're using comics in a way. You're imagining, you're basically putting <coughs> memories and, and, and experiences on paper that are, um, you couldn't do it 
any other way and there's an authority to what you do where you, where you, when you draw what somebody else has experienced, if you had hired actors or something like that to recreate it, it would have such a patina of falseness and artifice it would not work. Whereas you're channeling through yourself, it's such a profound act of sustained empathy and emotion, I am humbled by it. I honestly... Well, thank you. That's kind <laughs> of you to say. Well, it's true, so... That's kind of you to say. I was hoping we were going to have pictures, but they, they don't seem to be working at the moment. Joe, one of the things, <laughs> um, which, isn't, which is rather ironic at a thing about graphic novels, obviously, one of the things that really struck me the first time I read Palestine was um, <coughs> these amazing double-page spreads in which... Um, oh, here we go, Chris is to start with. Um, in which you kind of would draw a Palestinian village, or in Severi Gurajda you would draw a Bosnian town that had just been bombed. And, and what struck me was that in a way that newspapers or, or news reports can't do, you're actually placing the reader in the place. They're very grounded in the place. And, is it, and that feeds on into the rest of the, the book. I mean, is that something you're aware of? Yeah, I mean, it's important. I think that's one of the great advantages of, of comics is the repeated image. Mm. Um, you know, it's... Uh, I, I use this example a lot, but uh, a, a writer can talk about some peripheral background thing if, if he's talking about a village or a refugee camp in the Palestinian territories, like the graffiti on the wall that you see, used to see everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but how often is the writer going to bring that up? But in, in comics with repeated images, the foreground, one thing can be going on in the foreground and in the background you can show that graffiti over and over again so that the, the, it, it just follows the reader around like it follows you around when you're in, in um, Gaza. Mm. So I, I find that a real advantage. It's, this con it's, it's the repeated image and letting the atmosphere really does sink in, I think. I mean, I'm a, I, I'm a great believer and admirer of what photojournalists do. But they have a power, but their power is trying to have one image uh, sum up the whole story. And with comics, you, you, you give yourself the time to slowly let it seep into the into the reader's mind. Yeah, I remember my, my, my strongest reaction after reading Seferia Garajda was not necessarily the memory of, of, of the characters, but was the sense of the place itself. I literally felt like I had been there. You created a sense of that entire city in such a three-dimensional way that it really it, it accrued in my memory like a real place. Mm. So really astonishing. And the other thing I wanted to ask was, that's a good example of Safe Eric Barista because um, I, re I read it again last week and I was very struck by the, there are very extreme moments in it, the very violent moments. Is there something about the graphic novel, a slight distance that allows you to get away with that, that allows people to look at it? That, you know, if that was in you know, a photograph or news footage, that would be very difficult. Certainly what's seen on the bridge, for example. Yeah, well, I've always thought, I've always thought there's a danger in comics too, which, I mean, uh, I think you see a lot in, let's say, superhero comics where that most dramatic moment, which a photographer spends his whole life or her whole life trying to get, uh, an artist can draw every dramatic moment they want. They can, they can cut it down to the exact moment when something is happening. There's a real power in that, and there's, it can be abused, I think. So I've always thought you have to be careful how, much, how you show violence. And I, I decided a long time ago, okay, the reader's in this with me. We, we cannot shy away from violence, but I, I don't want to use those moments to knock the reader senseless, because ultimately you want the reader to come along. Mm -hmm. That's important. Mm -hmm. Going back to the, the point um, I started with, with Joe, with this notion of the double-page double spread in, in his putting you into the, into the 
the place, as it were, Chris. Mm -hmm. well, what I love about yours is, is there's the sense the, pa the page itself is an architectural thing, and building stories particularly. Mm -hmm. um, the, the page design is really interesting. Okay, thank you. Well, it is. <laughs> is there a question? That? Well, I'm just, I'm well, just wondering, you know, how do you, how you kind of well, arrive the, at that that's point? That's the basic unit of comics, is the page. I don't think it's the panel. The panel is actually a subdivided image of the page itself. The shape of the book is where it starts, and then it goes down from there, and it unfolds from there. So I, I try to think of an, an open page as looking into a memory. And I, I think comics are fundamentally an art of memory. That's what it all comes from. And so I, I tried to structure a number of pages from the center out, almost like an atom or a, or a planetary system or something, with everything kind of orbiting around it, rather than just something kind of spread out as like a, this happened, this happened, this happened. That some of them are like that, because it is the way sometimes we remember things as a linear story. But I also wanted to make the relationships between events and people and objects maybe a little bit more three-dimensional, if that's possible, on mm. the page. So, And also, the, the, the images that I chose to put in the center of the pages, there's hopefully supposed to line up in the reader's mind somewhat, like the images of the of the woman's daughter as she grows up first as a baby and then as an older girl. And there's an image of a flower as well. And uh, and the images of all the people that she imagines the, their lives too. So um, it's it's you're, you're not keen on the idea of comics as cinema, as a, you know, a kind of frozen cinema. Well, no, that's certainly one approach. There's there's nothing wrong with it necessarily. I just think that there's there's a, there's a power inherent in comics that is probably a little more findable if you think about it in terms of their own power as as a printed graphic image, not as a uh, something that is sort of an approximation of film, which is what happened in the 1930s and 1940s with comics. I really feel like they froze as, as an artistic medium. Before that, they were sort of exploding with energy and experimentation. The comics from the turn of the century newspapers are much more interesting than the comics from the 1940s newspapers, because at that point they decided, wow, film is so exciting. Let's use long shots and close-ups and, and long pans and, you know, Caroscuro uh, and whatever we can to try to get this excitement of movies on the page, so, which is fine. That's mm. one approach. And the the uh, the irony is that we we dream in movies now. I, everybody's had the weird dream where they're a secret agent or an astronaut or something <laughs> like that. You know, God only knows what's happening to our brains. Uh, but we make movies for a reason, and we structure them a certain way. So, what came first, the the film or the the memories? So mm. It's all related, I guess. But. There seems to be a lot of patience in your work with uh, repeating panels. The, they're the ones I think when in your session you were talking about reading the pictures, mm -hmm. um, where you might have a whole series of panels where two people are speaking, and it's often very a repeated image. Mm -hmm. um, is that what you're talking about, like being just careful of not overdoing, switching it around, just making it easy to get through? A little bit. I think if you if you don't move what's thought of in comics as the camera, which is a phrase I don't like using, or a word I don't like using. If you keep the point of view fixed, the, the idea of the camera vanishes, and then the, the difference between movement of characters within panels is much more obvious and profound, and you can sense the movement much more readily as you read it. You're actually reading the images then. You're not just, you're not just looking at them and trying to figure out what's going on. So um, I think there's a, a, greater, a greater power to that. So. And images bounce off each other. You can you can show two panels together. For example, in in Seafarer Grace, as um, you do a, a chapter with the Drina River, mm -hmm. and it ends with a, a, a picture, which is also the name of the cigarettes that they smoke. Right. And you have a, an image of uh, someone smoking a cigarette with the legend Drina, and then a picture of the river, 
right next to it, drain it again, put the body floating in it, and, and these things, they kind of bounce off each other, really. and you do that all the time, Chris. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. 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 Right. Sorry. yeah. So juxtaposition well, is yeah. one of the strengths of, of, of the, the form. Yeah, well, certainly. I, my friend Ivan Brunetti said to me a few years ago, he said, you know, I think comics really haven't really been thought of as collage that much, but that's sort of what they are. And I thought, ah, you shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know what? You're right. I hadn't thought of that. So it really was like a whole new fertile way of thinking about comics as a, as a collage of images and also a collage of memory on the page. So, so certainly, um, and pages get a little more interesting if you vary the stuff uh, a little more. If you think about the textures on the page and the textures of how images feel, you know, if you become sensitive to that as a cartoonist. So, as I really feel, there's something about comics that there's no word for it necessarily, but say the way people move in Joe's stories, the way people move in Seth's stories, the way people move in Dan Klaus's stories, they all seem to have a particular weight or a particular motion to them, and the reader senses that as they read the, the stories. And if even if Dan tried to draw like Seth, you could still tell that Dan was doing it in this weird way. They, there's some internal sense of whether it's what it feels like to be in Dan or Seth's body or something about how they've experienced life, but that comes through no matter how one draws. And that's this, this is, it's just a, mystery to me about comics, but there's there's a power in that that I think is what's really tapped when mm. we work. So. Mm. When you mentioned memory, I, I think that's one of the things that you both share, actually, is, is, is the idea of memory is, is kind of very central to both. I mean, obviously, in a much more contested sense, Joel, um, but it is something that there's something about images on a page, uh, you know, this, this kind of layering of them that allows you to tap into that in a way that film can't do or, or, or maybe novels can't even do. Well, I think I think it's just it, the power in comics is that it can be laid out before you in the same way that it's laid out in your brain in a way you can see a lot more when you close your eyes in your memory than you can say in a film where you have to think about where things are and allow them to layer in the reader's memory in your mind things are much more readily available and that uh, in a in a comic book you can place things at certain points in pages and then use that placement later on in the story to create sort of a a resonance between images and between spaces and places. You can even contradict certain things to hint at the way we misremember yeah. things, or at least I try to and, do that. Sometimes. And you're relying on the reader's memory. Right, yeah. yeah. When you do that, I mean, you quite often you will have someone, uh, you, you'll actually draw what's happening in the scene, but you also have the face speaking um, at the same time. So we're all very aware that memory is, is involved here. This is someone's subjective experience. Right. I think that's important to do, you know. Um, when in, in the last book I did, that uh, uh, Footnotes in Gaza, the last major book I did, um, there are stories that are conflicting, and I was I was trying to think how do I reconcile these stories, and at some point you realize you you don't reconcile the stories. It's a problem, and you just let the reader confront the same problem by showing all those different versions of the same story. What's more, did I go off again? No. What's more important to you? Is it, is it the experience of the book or the memory of the book after the readers um, finished reading it? Oof. <laughs> I mean, I, I obviously want the, the reader to remember the basic arc of the book and get something out of it in the long term. But, but the very visceral nature matters to me a, to a great extent. Mm -hmm. It is a visceral thing. It's not, I mean, comics are visceral ultimately. 
And it's not just about providing information that can be referenced later. Oh, I remember reading about that. No, I do think about impact and all that. Again, you know, you've got to be careful in how you're using it. Um, but I do think of um, bringing things down, bringing things up, mm -hmm. and uh, now playing something that will sh it shocked me and it will shock the reader. Right. I often want to give the reader the same experience I had in finding something out. Mm -hmm. That definitely comes through. I'm going to kind of throw it over, over to the audience in a moment. Just one final question, because the other thing that strikes me about the comics is time is another really interesting thing. Um, Joe's next book, which comes out in October, The Great War, which is the first day of the song, is this amazing thing. We'll, we'll maybe bring it out a little bit later, later yeah. and show you and everyone. Sorry, I'm just saying, Joe's latest next book, The Great War, which is about the first day of the song, is um, basically <laughs> exists. <laughs> Exists in both space and time at the same time in a, in a, in a bizarre way. I'll show you that in a second. But, but I, I think it's really striking about um, comic strips is the way that time can change between panels. I don't think any form can, can match that, to be honest. I don't think there's anyone else that can move in time and memory in the same way. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's funny. Someone pointed this out to me. This isn't an original thought of mine, but after I gave a talk, someone said, well, even if you juxtapose two photographs next to each other, of, because sometimes I'll draw an image and then I'll draw it 50 years later, what a village looked like at one point and what it looked like 50 years later. But even if you had photographs um, of, of those places, uh, the technology changes so much that one photograph would look so much older than the other that the technology would sort of not allow you to show how organic time can be. Mm. Where when you're drawing, I mean, the way I draw is not going to change from panel to panel. <laughs> You've had a lot of love on this stage. I've, got, I've had none. Listen, I'm going, to, I'm going to open up to the audience. Um, can you stick your hands up if you've got a question? We'll have a microphone, I guess, and someone will bring it to you. Any questions? One here, right in the middle. Hello to you both. Um, a big admirer of both of your work. Um, I was just wondering, simple question, what, what is your state of mind when you're, when you're drawing? when you're creating your comics, obviously. Mine is total despair. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I just simply cannot get past this wall of self-doubt. It's somehow, I've become, I've just kind of tried to just be friends with it in some way, you know. It's, uh, uh, and I'm not saying this to try to garner sympathy or anything. I'm saying it genuinely because I'm sure there must be at least a few cartoonists in this crowd out here who I, um, I feel probably maybe feel the same way. When I was a young cartoonist, I, I, I thought there must be something wrong with me that I hate myself so much and I feel like I can't get this to come out the way I want it to. And it, it's just difficult, that's all, because you're sitting at a table, you're working on these stories that are, that are in some cases very personal uh, and it's, you have a lot of time for self-reflection and self-doubt. And it's, uh, at the same time, I think it's good to have a certain level of, of self-doubt because not only does it allow for a certain humility, but it allows you to see things with a certain objectivity that um, is, I think is necessary to creating hopefully honest art. Uh, I feel different things at different times. I mean, sometimes it's sheerly tedium and boring, and sometimes when you know you have to draw something and it's not that interesting, but it needs to be done, that's what's appropriate. And there are other times I'm very much into it and sort of lost in my own little world. And um, then the phone rings and you realize, oh, I've lost a good moment now. And 
you know, it, it sort of varies back and forth uh, over time and depending on what I'm doing. Sometimes I've got, you know, some music cranked up and I'm just drawing away and other times the moment needs some reflection in the drawing, truly needs some reflection and then it's like everything's off and I can work late into the night, just continue. I used to think that actually that when I, when I, if I actually enjoyed what I was doing rarely, that frequently those turned out to be the worst pages I'd ever worked on. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, well, then the best ones must be the ones where I felt awful. And then I would sometimes look at those and think, oh, those are terrible too. So there's really, there's really no hard and fast rule. So. Um, you both seem pretty bright, and, and so do your comics. Um, I'm wondering if it bothers you that, um, you know, like, I think there's still a place for those comics where you know Batman punches Superman in the face and it's 20 pages and you, you rip through it. But the way that comics are seen is often as pretty, pretty sort of low down the cultural heat and fairly dumb. And that, that obviously doesn't represent a lot of the comics that are produced, but a lot of the people that think that don't read them. D does it bother you, the way comics are, are still sort of generally seen? Or? Uh, I, I'm not too bothered by it. I feel like it's gotten, a bit, it's gotten better. And um, I mean, the truth was, there was a period when, when comics were seen as dumb, about 15 years ago. That's when I was doing my Palestine work. And what was kind of great about no one paying attention and it not selling well was, was I, w I could find my own voice without a lot of people barking in my ear. And the more it's become grand and part of what's considered a proper art form, the more people are sort of tending to that. And so I kind of miss the days when uh, it was a little more underground and under the radar. But I don't, I don't feel, I'm not worried about what people think of comics. And if people enjoy Batman comics, that's fine. You know, it's not a big deal for me. I, I think it's great that comics are a trash art form because it's one of the few art forms where you can have an honest relationship with the reader. I, mean, I said this on Monday night that I really, I, I went to art school, I studied painting and sculpture, and I spent a mini, an art class being told that painting was dead. And that <laughs> if I didn't understand a painting, it was because I didn't understand the history of, of 20th century art or abstract expressionism or whatever it was that we were studying at the moment. And the best thing about comics is that if you read a comic strip and you don't understand it, it's not because you don't understand the history of comics, it's because you think the cartoonist is an idiot. And, uh, that's, a, that's a good relationship to have. So I, I, I cherish that, actually. So. Any other questions? Two in the middle here. Oh, two in It's like a collection plate in church or something. <laughs> Do your words and pictures always go together? Do I? Do your words, words do you? Do the pictures and the words um, at the same time? No, I don't. Uh, I'm, tr I'm experimenting with this again because I like that feeling um, of being very spontaneous, but it's nonfiction. And I have tried starting not like drawing nonfiction stories um, as I was writing them, and it was always a big mistake because there, there are always loose ends that I, I, I can't avoid, I can't write around. They have to be brought up. And, uh, <coughs> I've learned that it's better to write a full script. What, and I, but what I don't do is do storyboarding. I don't pour concrete on the idea of images until, you know, I don't do that at all. I, what I do is I wait till the whole script's done, then I start drawing. And what, every day it's sort of fresh in my mind what I feel like drawing or what, what works for that particular part of the script. In my own case, I found that the worst thing I can do is write a script. I, I, anything that I ever did where I wrote a script just immediately just came out feeling dead and contrived. It was, it was immediately false. And I found that if I used 
the, the mechanism that is inherent in comics, which is related to memory, remembering things, relationships in one's own mind, to allow the story to form itself on the page as I drew, that suddenly it seemed to come alive on the page. And to me, that's the goal of any, any art, is to try to create an art that, that is alive in some odd way. That, and that's purely because I believe I'm working in, in a fictional way. That is, you know, that's the, that's the real kernel of what that's about, I think. We're, we're all writing fiction in one way or another, it, it, whether we think we are or not, when we're remembering things. So, and I try to, to tap into that as a, as a writer, so. Can I just ask a quick, very quick question to you, actually, in the sense that it's interesting that we, we say graphic novel, and yet there are so many people working in non-fiction forms. Memoirs, the obvious one, Mouse and, and Persepolis and things like that. What is it about the form that lends itself to non-fiction? I don't know. I mean, I just, that's just how I it. use it. That's how I, that's how I use it. I mean, that, it's true. I mean, there's a, there's a filter. An artist is a filter. To me, it's a subjective non-fiction. I don't think you can be objective in any sense, I think, in any medium, frankly. Uh, it's very hard to be objective in any, any art form. But comics, it's, it's really difficult, even if you're trying, you're writing about real things, because ultimately, you are an artist who is subjectively going to lay things out, put, emphasize one thing over another. So that might be the fictionalized part, if anything, yeah, yeah. Uh, that you're referring to. I, th I mean, I think also the, the the greatest graphic novel that we could probably all agree on, Mouse, is not a novel. It's a nonfiction memoir. So, and that's frequently pointed to as the beginning of what the graphic novel is. So, um, whatever. It's, uh, comics is all they've always said. It's always been named horribly. I mean, <laughs> comic. Actually, comic. The word, I found the word comic books on the back of some minstrel songsters from the 1850s. They were, it was a word used to describe collections of horrible racist song lyrics. So those were comic books. So God only knows what we're actually doing in my <laughs> tradition of here. <laughs> Sorry, other questions? One over here. Oh, God, there's loads. Where's the, where's the microphone? Maybe you should just throw the microphone yeah, across there. <laughs> Well, you can probably yell if you wanted. The guy gave I'll up. Call one over here. He just went home. Just a question to Joe. Um, you mentioned before about the, um, you know, um, finding it hard to draw the expressions of your characters. Um, sometimes when I when I cry, um, I kind of almost imagine what I look like, you know, in front of a mirror crying. When you try to find the expression. Um, uh, for your characters, do, do you kind of use sort of, you know, your own emotions to, you know, help you draw images of your, of the emotion of the character? Uh, well, not exactly my own emotions, but yeah, there are some times I'm, I'm interested in how the face, what happens to a face under certain circumstances, and the, the most convenient way to do it, you know, is to look into a mirror um, and but then, you know, I've, I've discovered Google images and I realized, oh, some people don't exactly look terrified in the same way I look terrified. <laughs> you know, you realize there are, there's a lot of ways people express themselves, which is something I need, I need to remind myself of. It's usually my hands that you'll see. And I, my hands always look, everyone has my hands in the thing. Sometimes I try, I better fatten up that finger because my hands are sort of, you know, they're delicate. <laughs> One right at the front here. 
Sorry, you talked a lot at the beginning about mean publishers and how long it takes to produce one of these books. I'm just curious how both of you, um, if, if you want to be that person, supposed to, how you supported yourselves while you got going. Look, what have we got going financially? <laughs> Hedge funds. <laughs> I didn't, I mean, to me it was, um, it was really difficult until I was about 40. It took a long time to get to that point. And I was pretty much going to give up. But, you know, the cards just started to play my way. And, uh, and now I've got to say I'm, I'm relatively comfortable. I don't really need any more than I have. I'll say that. I'm quite content financially. Uh, in my own case, I, um, uh, when I was initially publishing my, my early periodicals, um, I would do occasional uh, illustration, which is tantamount to prostitution, basically, as far as I'm concerned. It's basically like, art, you know, it's like art without love or something. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I, it's, uh, you know, it was sort of soul draining. And it's also dangerous because, it, yeah, I would find ways of, like, abbreviating and getting through it much more quickly that then I would find cropping up in my own work that I was trying to be careful with. So it could be corrosive. But once I got past that point and uh, realized that I didn't have to do it anymore, I was very, very grateful. So just pure luck. I never thought I would be doing this. I, I literally thought I'd be... The guy in the grocery store, you know, who stocks in the frozen aisle, and everybody would go, that's the cartoonist guy. He's working on that long <laughs> book, you know, or whatever. And uh, I don't know what happened. I, I got very, very, very lucky. So I'm um, like a barnacle on the whale of society or something. <laughs> so I have a different way of looking at it. I feel like deserve everything I ever got. More <laughs> <laughs> questions? One in the middle here? Up there. Can I ask Joe one real quickly? Yes, of course, yes. Have you ever seen any evidence of or heard about any important politicians reading your work? Uh, or is there an important politician who you would wish would read your work? I don't think, I think they would look at it and go, oh yeah. No, I don't, really? I don't think it would change their mind. They know, I think they know that really? stuff. I think wow. they understand that stuff quite well, hmm. you know, to be honest. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Okay. A question for Chris, who mentioned that he enjoys drawings more than paintings. Mm -hmm. I think quite a few in the crowd agreed with that. Um, some of the most beautiful drawings I've ever seen from yourself are in the two date books. Uh -huh. And I just wondered why you resist allowing that style of drawing to come into your fiction because the comics are many things. They're beautiful and inspiring and absorbing, but they're certainly not loose. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> so. that's true. Well, there's a variety of reasons. Number one, that when I'm drawing in my sketchbook or drawing from life, I'm trying to see something. I'm trying to see it with as much detail as I can. When I'm writing fiction or drawing comics, comics are a reductive uh, sort of language, and I'm trying to work with images that are a con condensation of a variety of different things, say like a chair. You know, if I'm trying to draw a chair, I'm trying to see it a specific chair. When I say the word chair, you think of a chair and it's sort of, you kind of know the basic shape. That's what comics is. Also, since I'm not working in nonfiction, I do actually draw that way in my, I keep a cartoon diary and I do draw very loosely because I'm trying to remember what actually happened to me. But since I'm actually writing fiction, otherwise I want it to look very synthetic. I want it to look false. I want it to look contrived. So. Uh, I also don't want it to be that interesting. I don't want the reader to linger on it necessarily. I said this the other night too, but I, I, I feel that I, I, 
if I do, then it can kind of slow. I did, lately, I've been trying to put more detail into certain images because I find that in some cases the detail equals time or it equals certain moments. Because there are moments in conversation where all of a sudden something might hit you, you might stop and look at somebody and see something that you didn't notice before. Um, there's all sorts of things going on in a simple conversation that you're having with someone, all kinds of memories that filter through all sorts of strange moments from your childhood that come up all sorts of thoughts about what you hoped you were going to be at some point in your life that don't come out and you, just even when you're just saying a simple sentence. So I try to get at some of those things if possible. So and the only way to do that is graphically, I think, in a comic strip. Uh, time for a couple more, just this over the site. Just bear with us till we get the microphone over to you. Two uh, brief observations leading to a question for Joe. I happened to be in Bosnia the exact time you were. It was very, very different before and, of course, very, very different after. And I just want to say that I'm always amazed when I read that book, which has been many times, how absolutely perfect every detail and every atmospheric was. That's the first observation. Then another observation that brings me back to my childhood. I don't know if you ever saw these, something called war cards that were issued in the 30s. War what? War cards. They were issued by American pacifists about what was happening in the 30s, mainly in um, the Japanese invasion of, of um, China and other colonial atrocities. They've never left me. The vividness, the atmospheric, the detail has never left me. So the question is, it, do you think this particular genre has a particular power with violence and war because the Bosnian book is in fact the best book I've ever read on Bosnia having been there and the war cards have never left me and of course graphic novels often deal or predominantly I would say deal with zones of conflict, zones of war, zones of violence, Gaza, Bosnia. So is there a particular relation between a particular powerful symbiosis between the genre and historical violence, that's the question, if it's not too big. Whew. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, thank you. Um, I mean, there, are, there have been many war comics, and um, a lot of the ones I read as a kid, I thought back on them, and I was um, a little shocked by them, because violence was always portrayed so spectacularly. and. I had it in my own mind that what I want to do is make it look as, I wanted to make war look as squalid as it actually is. It's, you know, maybe there are heroics, but I never saw any. I'm sure there are on, on some level. Um, and any heroics come with a real price. Uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's, there's, I hope I've shown that it can be done. And I, I think it can be done, you know, uh, by others. I'm not exactly sure what you were getting at as far as the symbiosis part of it. It just seems particularly well suited to No, I definitely think that because I've spent 20 years doing it. <laughs> so I definitely think it. And I definitely think you can take a reader into a place. That's, that's my main goal. And I think if you stay out of the way, there are stories that are there that you just sort of let happen um, that can be told graphically. You can go back into the past, you can actually tell people's stories, uh, and as a journalist you can walk that ground and, and draw it as it might have looked at another time. I think we've got time for one more question, sorry, but is there anyone else who's really keen? There's one just there. 
So I was first introduced to comics through a university course. I was wondering how you feel about academic interest in graphic novels. That goes to me. A lot of the people that are teaching classes in universities are people that used to post on message boards that I stopped reading 10 years ago because I found it so like emotionally painful. <laughs> and I'll see like, you know, XYZ is now teaching at the University of, you know, revered brick building or something. And I'll just think, wow, how did that happen? You know, so I, on the other hand, I, I'm amazed. I never would have guessed that that would have ever transpired, and I'm very heartened by it and, and uh, moved by it, actually, that, that somebody would consider something that I've done or that my peers have done that is worthy of that sort of analysis and study, I suppose. So at the same time, I kind of worry a little bit about it losing a, a little bit of its straightforward honesty or or like, oh, Jesus, do I really have to read this? Like, did you read that? Can you tell me what happened for the test? You know, sort of thing. So, <laughs> um, I, it's just something that it's the natural course of things, I think, in, uh, in, uh, in literature. Um, I wonder how John Updike felt when A&P became you know, a, a widely anthologized story in, uh, in, in English classes. So, but similar sort of thing, I guess. I'm not answering your question. I think it's swell. It's great. <laughs> uh, well, uh, for me, I mean, for me personally, it's sort of a good thing because uh, some of my books are taught in classes, and that keeps the book selling. I mean, on that, I mean, seriously, you want to live as an artist, you, you're kind of grateful for that. Um, and sometimes people will write dissertations about, uh, I'm sure, your work and my work, and they'll send them to me. And sometimes I think they actually get it. They really do get it, and sometimes I don't really understand a lot of the language um, because they have other uh, filters in which they're viewing my work. And some of the academics I know personally, and they're quite lovely people, and they actually care about the art form. So I don't, um, I'm not overly troubled by it. The only thing I, in a, in a sort of a more general sense, I worry that comics will lose their underground nature sometimes. I mean, even my own work. What if, if it's part of that movement or Chris's, you know, we've, we've sort of maybe raised up what comics can do. I always want to remind myself of the other thing comics can do, which is really be an underground form, a subversive form. And I hope the Academy doesn't sort of, that, that's part of the thing that maybe troubles me on some slight level. I think it's interesting that, that there's a study now of visual art that's meant to be read. Um, because that certainly wasn't going on when I was in art school. So uh, I guess now there's art, there's classes at the Art Institute of Chicago in comics in every single department, which surprises me. I kind of wonder, though, about teaching comics as a form in and of themselves. Like sometimes I wonder if it's better if they still just appear in a literature class or in an art class. Maybe not, though. I don't know. But uh, again, as Joe says, so many of the, the academics that I've met are all really very kind people and very, very thoughtful people and generous people. So. Listen, I'm, I'm really sorry. We've run out of time. I know there's lots of questions that we just didn't get to. I apologize for that. Um, Joe and, and Chris are, are going to be signing in the tent next door. They've got an um, up to an hour to do that. So you're more than welcome to come along and have a quick word with them there and get your, your book signed if you like. Um, I'd just like to say thank you all for coming. I hope it was interesting. And thanks these two gentlemen very much. Thanks a lot. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.
www.ghostbusters.co.uk